The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. We're in Psalm 72. The scripture's not going to be on the board today. Um, I, I want us today, it's going to be a, a little bit different, because I want to give us all an opportunity to think about our own prayer lives, uh, specifically how we pray for others. And for those of us who have kids, especially specifically how you pray for your kids. Now, this does not mean young kids only. This is any kids, and if you don't have kids, how you pray for those people who are the kids around you. So this psalm is, to me, one of the best uh, systems of how we can pray for other people. So we're going to jump into it and, uh, and see what God has to speak to us this morning. So let's pray. Father, you are good. And it amazes me that we can come and talk to you. It amazes me that you hear us. It amazes me that you speak to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would do so now. Lord, I pray that as we head into this Christmas season, that our hearts would be tuned more and more into your voice, that our, that our hearts and beings would overflow with radical generosity and love toward others that we wouldn't get caught up in the, the cultural skirmishes that often surround this holiday, that we would press into you and be grateful for all that you've done for us, all that you came to do for us, and all that you are still doing for us. Lord, today, this morning, now speak to us and teach us to pray. Teach us how to lift others up and remind us, remind us and point us toward the perfection of Jesus, the reason we're here. It's in his name we pray, all God's kids said. Amen. Psalm 72, we're going to read a little, talk a little. Read a little, talk a little. Verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now, if you didn't know who this was being written about, this sounds a lot like Jesus. But this prayer, and I wanted to Tarantino us, is David's final prayer for his son, Solomon. This prayer is David saying, God, this is what I want of my son. I want my son to be someone who is just and righteous, and cares for the poor. He goes on to say, May, verse 5, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. Does anyone remember anything about Solomon? If you were here during the Ecclesiastes study, we talked about uh, Solomon a lot because Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote a lot of the book of Proverbs and he wrote the Song of Songs, a sex book, and he wrote some of the Psalms themselves. Solomon was not what we would call a beacon of shining righteousness. If we had to choose a word for Solomon, it may be a womanizer. It may be absolutely filthy rich. It may be spoiled. We know he was wise. But I, I don't think that if he just rolled in here today, we would say, look at that guy, shining beacon of righteousness. But this was David's prayer for him. Now, if you don't know who Solomon was, it was King David's son. 
And Solomon had hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of sexual relationships. He had hundreds of wives, which I don't know why any guy would want to do that to himself. And then on top of that, he had concubines, which I don't know why you would want to do that to yourself. I've watched Sister Wives like a whole point four episodes, and I deduced from that show that multiple wives is bad, that polygamy is no good, it doesn't work out. And, and all you have to do is just watch the behind-the-scenes take from Sister Wives. If you don't know what the show is, don't watch it. It's not worth your time, just mine. Um, but basically, it's a guy who marries multiple women. And it's like the reality TV shows of the 90s where it shows them all happy together. They come and eat dinner, and then they do the confession booth moment where they're alone. And it's like, ding, ding, ding. And the one wife is like, well, how do you feel about, you know, Mary Jo Susan? Well, I don't know about Betty Jo. I'm going to kill her, and I'm going to kill her. I'm going to slit her in the sleeve, blah, 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 blah. And then they go back, and they have dinner together. Hey, guys, let's have dinner. Our kids will play and be friends forever. Now, this is Solomon. If you walked in here and sat down and you knew his reputation, We'd, we'd all be judging him. I, I have a, this is bad. I can't help it, okay? There's somebody in our culture that's, there's a lot of people in our culture known for womanizing right now. I mean, it's all over the news. Politicians, celebrities, producers, directors. Right now, it's the cycle that we can't turn on the news without seeing a new sexual assault. So I'm not going to name names. But if any of them came in here, if any of them from the presidential primary candidacy all the way till now, any of those guys that we know walked in here and sat down, I want to ask you this question. What would be the inclination of your heart toward them? If they sat down, if, if Donald Trump brought his little wiggy thing right over here, if Harvey Weinstein brought his little camcorder over here, what would we do? What would we think? Would we lift them up in prayer, and when we say, God, give these people your righteousness. Give them peace. Let their days flourish. I've prayed with people in uh, conservative circles, and I've prayed with people in liberal circles politically, and those are not the prayers I hear for our leaders, for sure. Usually it's, God, make whichever guy is not on my team, make them repent and come back to you. Now, that's a great prayer, but it's hardly a prayer for forward flourishing. David has got some big hopes for Solomon, and Solomon lets him down with a 10 out of 10 score off the diving board. David prays for the character of Solomon. Now, we often, in our culture, we value the word character, but we don't necessarily value the concept of character very much. As long as you have enough character that people can't see below, it's like we're all walking lottery scratchers, and our character display is just as thin as that. And some of us, when you scratch the surface a little bit, you begin to see what's underneath, and nine times out of ten, it's nasty. David prays for the character of his son. David prays that his son would defend the poor. The only prayer that I've prayed regularly for my kids to them at night, I pray that they would love Jesus, I pray that they would care for the poor, and I pray that they'd find someone to marry if they ever get married that also loves Jesus. That's really my prayer for my daughter. I'm, I'm a little bit sexist. I pray that my sons will get married and my daughter won't. Um, but as I pray for them, don't get mad at me or don't tweet me about that. As I pray for them, I'm, I'm always praying, God, let them care for the poor. And, and I, I love it to this day because the more we do this, now my kids challenge me all the time. Every time I want to pass a panhandler, 
My sons will not let me pass the panhandler. My son will say, Daddy, there's someone that needs something. And I'll say, well, buddy, we just don't know their situation. And, and Jax will say, but God does. And I'll say, no, yes, but I don't have any money. Well, Dad, don't you have a card you can put in a machine? Yes. Well, can't we go back to the machine and you can get money out and give it to them? Well, that's inconvenient. Didn't Jesus inconvenience himself for you, Dad? No, he doesn't go that far. <laughs> One day he will, and I'm going to be like, ooh. <laughs> because it's true. Jesus inconvenienced himself for us. He came down for us to defend us because we are the poor in spirit. We are those who thirst and have need. Now, David is doing something amazing here, which I, I love. And, and I, it depends on which Bible you have. If, you have a, if you're on the e-Bible, it may not have this. But you're going to notice something about this Psalm 72. There are breaks in the sections. There's a break from between verse 4 and verse 5. So if you're in your English Bible, you'll see just a one-line space. And then there's also a break between verse 7 and 8. And then another break between verses 11 and 12, 14 and 15, and 17 and 18. So there are six sections of Psalm 72's prayer. In the beginning, David prays for his character. David prays that he would last long and flourish. And then he goes on in verse 8. This is the third section. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May, he, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now he's talking just about Solomon. He's praying now for Solomon's situation, Solomon's favor. And this is what he says, verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. So now he's talking about what, who Solomon is. Now this is an easy uh, litmus for prayer. First, pray for the character of your kids. First, pray for the character of your spouse. First, pray for the character of your coworkers, friends, and family. Start there. Pray for who they are, not for what they do or what they have. We are addicted to praying for things that we have because our culture says that if you have more, then that makes you more. But this is not the case in the Bible. The Bible's case is that if you are a good person who follows Jesus and is faithful, then that's what you are, and that is the most important thing. The rest of the stuff does not matter in comparison to your character. Solomon, at whatever age David is writing this prayer, was already seemed like a decent guy. He seems like a guy who's he's already doing some of these things. He cares for the needy. He cares for the poor, cares for those who don't have a helper. I don't know what happened to Solomon. We know that Solomon writes one of the most beautiful love stories in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. And then between that book and the end of his life, he had hundreds of, of sexual relationships. We don't know. He writes this amazing book about love and dating and courtship and romance, and then something broke. In the beginning here, we know that he cared, it seems to say he cared for the needy. But then, at one point, he's throwing these extravagant parties for fifteen to 20,000 people night after night after night where he's destroying vineyards, wiping out flocks of cattle just to satiate his desire to have fun. So something happened with David's prayer. Verse 15, the prayer goes on. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him 
all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom from in the circles like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. That's the end of the sixth or the fifth section. Now, this sounds a lot like Jesus to me. And this is what I love about this psalm. In the Old Testament, numbers matter. Now, I'm not one of those crazy number people. I'm not doing that thing where like, okay, if their name's got six letters in each of their names and they must be the Antichrist, I'm not that guy. But the Bible does place a value on certain numbers. One of those numbers is seven, right? God created the world in seven days. On the seventh day, he rested. Also, one of the numbers throughout the Bible is six, because six represents the day on which man was made. Six represents the day that is not complete, the day that doesn't quite measure up. The reason that the mark of the beast is 666 is because three is the number of perfection, and six is the number of not quite complete. So Satan, the evil one, is perfectly incomplete. He is not a complete being. He doesn't have the pieces that are required to be a perfect being. When in the Psalms you see stanzas, and this is for all the poetry nerds out there, this happens all over the Psalms. You'll see it in Psalm 19, a lot of David's Psalms. He'll group things in groups of six because David wants to leave the reader hanging. He wants to leave you on the edge of, the, of your toes saying, wait a second, you didn't finish the story. There's supposed to be seven for it to be complete. Six is incomplete. It's like, um, well, we don't really experience this nowadays, but do you guys remember before binge-watching TV existed? Do you remember those days where you would watch a show on Thursday and they would cliffhang you? And literally all week, it's just on your mind, what will Jack Bauer do next week? And you're just wondering, or for those of, the, uh, of a different persuasion, you know, will McDreamy marry McWhoever needs morals? Um, this was the life we lived in. And now what we do is this. We, we see an episode, and I know some of you do this because I'm on Facebook and Instagram, you guys. You, you get to that end, you're like, ooh, just one more. Oh, just one more. And then you don't laugh if you're too guilty. You look over at the clock, and it's like 3.44 in the morning. Your eyes are bloodshot, but you just wonder, like, will the zombies get them? I must know. Real human productive work doesn't have to start tomorrow at 8. I must know. Hey, we've all done this, right? And by we all, I mean just you guys because I'm perfect because I'm a pastor. We don't do these things. We don't binge watch shows like Boy Meets World after our kids go to sleep because we want to know what happens to Corey and Topanga still. <laughs> Just hypothetically. This, this sense of waiting, we talked about it last week. If you weren't here last week, um, I, I, I gave everyone the challenge to do what I call the plus five. It's my, I've been doing it, you guys, nonstop since last week. The plus five, for those of you who weren't here, is to teach people how to wait and how awkward it can be. The plus five is when you hug somebody and you wait till they try to pull away from you and you say no and you hold them and then as soon as they pull away, that's your cue to start counting to the slowest five you can. One, Mississippi, Mississippi, Montana. Two, Mississippi, Mississippi, Montana. And after three seconds, they pat you on the back. Around four seconds, they try to pull again with a rub and pat. And then if you really want to be cruel, you just be like plus 10, you're mine. Because it's awkward waiting, we're bad at it. This psalm is meant to get us to 
to look at Solomon because now from this time, and if you read in Kings chapter 3, it's when Solomon takes over. And it quickly goes from like amazing. Solomon says, God, I'm going to lead your people. I need wisdom. God says, you want something good? Have all the wisdom, the wisest person to ever live aside from Jesus. And then all of a sudden from that point, he just spins out of control. This prayer did not work because Solomon is not God. This prayer did not work because Solomon was not born of God. This prayer was David's heart for what a true son could be. This prayer was David's heart for not actually Solomon, but for the true and better Solomon, who is Jesus, which is why it ends at 6. Even nowadays, we have, if, if we have any Jewish people here, we have menorahs for the holiday season, the Hanukkah holiday season, and on our modern menorahs, there are nine candles. And, and I'm not Jewish, I'm Filipino. I don't know if there's many Filipino Jews. But the original candle, the one that's in the temple, was seven. And the only reason they have nine is because the Jewish uh, old rabbi said, we don't want to try to replicate what's in the temple that is holy, that is pure and true, so we're going to add some candles. But the original lampstand, as given direction in the Bible, is seven candles. And the seventh one marks completion. And it's one of those moments where you just know when the sixth one's lit, we're almost there. It's, it's the same sensation that your kids get on Christmas Eve. I'm so excited for Christmas, with the exception of putting up the lights. Um, I'm, I'm generally a Grinch. I get excited for the first week. So from Black Friday till the next Sunday, I am all Christmas all the time. If you drove by my house, you'd be hearing Michael Bublé Christmas and Sync Christmas and pretty much just those two Christmas albums. Just going on repeat. And then I have an Oh Holy Night playlist with about 16 different artists. I go from Mariah Carey to Christina Aguilera to the Queen Bee, and it's just blasting Oh Holy Night. I'm showering to Oh Holy Night. No mental pictures. Um, it's just so good. But then after the first week, I'm like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Because after the first week, then my kids realize, wait a second. Daddy's sync album is on. We get presents. And then they start asking. My kids now are to the point where they know how to use voice commands on devices, and they understand Amazon, which is terrifying. Now, they can't buy anything because that's already happened, and I've been a good parent and password protected that. However, they can load up my cart to Kingdom Come. Santa lists used to be cute. We used to write it out with our terrible handwriting. But now my kids can load up my Amazon account. They get it all primed up. They'll go in and delete each other's presence. And by they, I mean just Jackson because he's smarter than the other one. So all of a sudden I'm looking and there's only toys for nine-year-old boys on here. I'm like, what happened to Play-Doh and Pretty Princess stuff? It's all gone. Jackson's in the corner like Mr. Smithers. And then on Christmas Eve, I mean, it's, it used to be easy to get my kids to bed. They know. I've, I've lost. I mean, I, I, there's, no amount of, of, uh, there's no amount of pills that can keep me awake. I, I don't even know what to do anymore because they're up there waiting like ravenous hyenas. <laughs> kids understand waiting better than we do. What do we do when we want something? Buy this. It's not on Prime. I've got to wait three days? Life over. Return it. Cancel order. <laughs> this waiting thing that God does with us. Imagine reading this psalm, and you're a priest in the temple, and you're saying, man, David had such high hopes for Solomon, but Solomon's over here doing all of these things. Why isn't Solomon 
being righteous? Why isn't he bringing peace to the land? Why isn't he doing these things? He brought some measure of peace, but then it just crumbled apart after Solomon. Kingdom divided. He went down more in infamy than fame. We are to wait for the true and better Solomon. The person who will come and actually bring peace. The person who will come and actually care for the poor and came to reach into the lives of those who the religious communities had pushed to the outside. God sent Jesus to come for people like Solomon. People like you and me. When I read this, there's such high hopes for Solomon. As a father, I know that when I pray for my kids, I I hope to the heavens for them. Before, when I was young and didn't have kids, I saw my life as one where my sole goal was to propel myself as high as I could. And then I had my first kid, and it took about a half of a second, and I, instead of becoming the rocket ship that was reaching for the stars, holding my first son, I thought, I want to be the most efficient launch pad I can possibly be for my kids. I don't care how high, I don't care if I'm one of the the rocket ships that fizzles out, I want to set up a ground where my children can blast off. And I don't mean to the American dream. I'm not opposed to the American dream fully, but I'm opposed to many aspects of it. I want my kids to reach the levels of faith and love and kindness and charity and helping the poor that would rival anybody. My, my biggest hope for my kids is that one of them would have the heart of Mother Teresa and the mouth of Billy Graham. This is what I want. I don't care if they're booming rich. I don't care if they're like stone-cold, beautiful, sexy people. I do care if one of them's that way. I, I don't care. I, I, really, I really just want them to be people who are addicted to changing this world with God's love. And that's why I like this prayer, because David puts it all on character, and then he prays for the influence and the situations to come, and all of them are toward helping others. All of them are toward being just and good and true. Now, we will fail. The reason we will fail is because we are not Jesus. The reason we have Jesus lit up back here is because we need Jesus to be what we could not. And if Solomon could have a prayer like this written about him, we ought to pray for those in our lives who we think are beyond God's reach. One of the most difficult parts of meeting with people that are going through difficult times is is when I see giving up in their eyes. When I see in someone's eyes, whether it's for a marriage, whether it's for a a job or vocation or a parent, and I've seen it so many times, it, it burdens my heart, where there's a look of saying, nothing can be done. I give up. David, I think, likely knew where his son was heading. His, his son, Solomon, was like the modern-day version of the rich Instagram kids. He knew where it was going. But David prayed this prayer. For us, I would hope that we don't give up. I would hope that we see our lives as six stanza poems that God is writing. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 10, it says that God is writing your, the poem of your life. He created you to, to be a beautiful poem. And the Greek word is poema there in Ephesians chapter 2. I think that's an amazing thing. In all of our lives, we are all six stanza poems. We're not seven because we're not complete. There are areas of your life that you look at and you say, this is never going to be fixed. Well, 
With that attitude, it won't. You're going to stay on day six forever. You're going to stay in the sixth line forever. But Jesus came and he brought the seventh line. He gives it to you freely. The thing that you think can't be completed was completed by him for you. The, the relationship that's broken, you think it's beyond repair. It might be beyond your repair, but it's not beyond his repair. The, the thing in your life, the addiction that you think, I can never overcome this. I just keep recycling this pain, recycling this struggle, recycling this sin. You're stuck on the sixth line. The sixth line that said, it's incomplete. It's not done. It's imperfect. It's man-centered. Because that was the sixth day of creation. Jesus came to open the door to the seventh line, to the seventh day, to completion. Now, if we don't get this, what we become are people who just try to make our sixth day look better than others. The reason I, I brought up people's names, and it doesn't have to be famous people. It can be famous people. It cannot be famous people. But this whole week, I've been thinking of, of how we constantly will look at other people's imperfections and mask our own. And I kept going back to this story. I don't know why my mind was drawn to it, the story of the woman who's brought to Jesus who was caught in adultery. Because I had in my mind this picture. Um, we have our poker chips. Mine's in my backpack. Our poker chips say, love God and love others. It's a, it's a tangible reminder to love other people. And I, I was holding it in my hand this week praying, and I thought, man, if I, if I held this reminder, it'd be way more impactful in my life than me walking around holding my metaphorical stones. Now, if you don't know the story, it's one of my favorites. The woman is brought before Jesus, and they say, she committed adultery, caught in the act, let's kill her. And Jesus leans down and writes some cryptic message that everyone tries to guess what it was. And then he says, let him who has no sin throw the first stone. And I, they were all holding their stones, and, and I don't know who the first to drop their stone would have been. Probably, I guess, one of the older people. Because once you get older, you realize we make mistakes, and one person dropped a stone, and another person dropped a stone, and another person dropped a stone. My fear is that there are many of us who are that last person in the crowd, and we just hold that stone because we like seeing the imperfection in people rather than seeing what God could make happen in their lives. We hold on to that stone thinking, I just want to keep it just in case, a little bit of ammo. And we might be the last person there some of us keep the stone in our back pocket for when a fight happens in the workplace. We go, I gotcha. Some of us keep a stone on our keyboard. Some of us keep a stone in our text messages. Keeping stones is, for those of you who aren't following the illustration, keeping a record of other people's wrongs. Saying, I'm going to keep this in case I want to judge them, harm them, knock them down. Keeping a stone in your hand is you forgetting that all of the stones that ought to have been aimed at you were aimed at Jesus instead. Keeping the stone in your hand is you saying, I'm going to keep this just in case I need to put something in its place. It's not, it's not our job to go around putting other people in all of their other places. If you're a parent, it is your job for your children. God gave you little humans, said put them in their place a good place that cares for others. If you're married, your spouse is not someone you're supposed to put in their place. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Your spouse is the person who you're supposed to love and cherish and nurture toward Jesus. 
Some of the biggest stone carriers I've ever seen are married people. We love pointing out the six-day imperfections of our spouse. We put on our backpack. We just collect stones. We collect stones from that Thanksgiving where there was a blow-up. We collect stones for that one time you said that one thing about my mother. We collect stones for that one time you raised your voice or said that one word. My, one of my dear friends, when his wife was pregnant, they were watching a documentary on beluga whales. You know where this is going. And uh, it was about these beluga whales that ate a bunch of crustaceans and they were pink and his wife just happened to be a shade of stretched out pink skin. And he said, babe, look, it's just like you. That was 24 years ago. You think that stone's going anywhere soon? I mean, I've heard that thing come out in stories I couldn't tell you how many times. Anytime my friend Brian says anything, Roxy's just like, I got this. We like to remember the failures instead of looking forward to the successes. This psalm is cool because it's, it frames a future success, and by leaving it in six stanzas, David's basically saying, I know it's not really coming in Solomon, but there is one, and it is coming through him one day, and all nations will call him blessed. In verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. This is David looking to the future. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. When we pray for others, let's pray for their seventh day. Let's pray for the best versions of them that we can fathom from what we know in Scripture. Let's not pray change this, change that, change this, change that. Usually the change game is us just trying to mold other people into the image of ourselves. It's us being little demigods saying, I want other people to be more like me. So God, make them more this, make them more that. Let's instead pray for the best of Jesus in that person. One of the things that I love about prayer is that it changes our attitude towards somebody. So we're going to pray right now. Are you ready? Because we need to know how to pray as people. You can pray under your breath. You can pray in your mind because God can hear you. But here's who I want you to pray for right now. The person who you are holding a stone for right now. They could be next to you. They could be across the world. They could be in your family. They could be in your job. I want you to look at this psalm, and I want you to pray some of the concepts of this psalm on their behalf. I want you to pray that, that they will be like rain on fresh-cut grass, that they would give life. I want you to pray that they would give to the needy. I want you to pray that they would be blessed and they would have long days. And I want you to pray for the person whose rock you have in your hand. I want you to put down the rock. We're going to pray. We're going to take 30 seconds, and we're going to pray. Are you ready? Put down your rocks. Everyone drop your rocks. Okay. 30 seconds. Go.
Father, help us be people this week who don't hold stones, but put them down and give up time for prayer on their behalf. Okay, I want you to pray now. If you have a Bible in front of you, in verse 12, this is something called praying the Psalms. If you've never done this, it's really easy. So in verse 12 of chapter 72, it says this, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. So praying the Psalms is when you bring your prayer life and you collide it with the Bible. This is something that I love to do because I know one thing for sure. This is God's word. So I want to speak God's word back to God. And I want to do this with my kids, my spouse, myself. So I want you to pick one person and with your eyes open, looking at verse 12, or you can pick really any Psalm you want. And I want you to put them in the Psalm. For Silas, my middle, delivers the needy. When he calls, and the poor, and him who has no helper. Silas, God, may Silas have pity on the weak and the needy. God, may Silas help save the lives of the needy. God, may Silas free people from oppression and violence. May Silas be a shadow of Jesus in the face of this dark world. That's how you pray the Psalms. So pick a person, a kid, a spouse, a neighbor, a friend, someone that you've brought in, adopted into your family, and pray the Psalm for them. Put their name Smash it in there. 20 seconds. Okay, now I want you to take 10 seconds, and with as much gusto as you can, I want you to pray and thank God for everything good that you have about God, to Him, that you're thankful for, that you're grateful for, who He is. 10 seconds at speed that I preach. Go. Okay, you guys all just prayed for a minute, and that's a minute longer than some of you have prayed in a long time. I need this family, this church family, to be a praying church. It's easy to be a church that sits. It's easy to be a church that does things. It's easy to rally people around things like shoeboxes. We had 174 shoeboxes. That, we, that were getting sent overseas around the world. Total with all the, the, this community, now this is a little bit of a sadder fact, there were only 714, something like that, boxes, how many, 718? For all of the Fishhawk area, like every church here, 700. Now that's a little depressing. But usually, for the most part, it's, it's pretty easy to do stuff. We feel good when we do stuff. We fill the pantry. We help somebody out. Prayer is the tough, the tough stuff. So here's what I need you to do today. I need you guys to make some sort of commitment. You don't have to because it's just me talking. You can lie to me. that I'm okay with that because it happens every day. But I need us to be a church that prays like, like this prayer. We need husbands and wives praying for each other, praying with each other. We need neighbors 
to pray with one another, not far away. Don't pray for people like a water balloon launcher. I'm going to pray for that guy way over there. We need people to get on their knees next to their bed with their kids. It's not that David's prayer for his son failed. It's that David was pointing his son toward Jesus. It's what the Old Testament does. Saying, this is what good looks like, but you are incomplete, which is why this is a six-stanza poem. I want you to pray this week. And I've said this before, and I'll say it a hundred times. If you've not been praying, it is so awkward to start. I've said this before, and I'll say it a thousand more times before I'm dead up here. If you don't pray with your spouse, one of you, grab the hand of the other one and just go. Don't even ask for permission. Don't even ask if they want to pray. If they don't want to pray with you, then just go hide in your closet and pray for them. Literally hide in your closet. We live in Florida. These houses have enormous closets here. Just go hide in there. If you've never prayed with your kids, don't make it weird and awkward. Unless you're a King James, don't say these and thous. It's creepy. Talk to God as, as you talk to your father, to your mother, whichever parent you love most. Don't tell them which one it was. And remember that all the things we ask God for, we are living on page six of a seven-page story. God has written the seventh page for us. So we are free now to put down our stones, to throw them at people like Solomon, and bring things to God in prayer. This church wouldn't be anywhere without prayer, and it won't go anywhere forward without prayer. Your marriage will not be anything without prayer and won't go forward without prayer toward Jesus. Your children, you can raise them up in the way they should go. And the Bible says they won't depart from it, but we've seen how many kids depart from the faith just by the droves. Well, I'm not saying that prayer is a magic key that will make your kids obedient, chaste, and pure. But prayer can sure do a lot more than just you confining them to corners and taking away their Xbox time. Until we get prayer in our hearts, we won't see the change that we all long for. The seventh day change. The prayer that brings about the completion of who we know we are called and saved to be. So let's pray one last time. Father, you are good. And Lord, we are people that have flawed characters. We are people who need to look forward to the seventh page. We are people who are imperfect, but now you have covered us with your perfection. We are people who are so self-centered that we forget how dependent we need, how much we need you for our daily living. God, this isn't a glamorous message or a, a fun message or a, an attractive message, but it's a message that until we grab it and plunge it to the bottom of our hearts, our church and our city will be stagnant. Our lives will be stagnant. So I pray that we would be a praying church, that above all, we would seek you, 
that we would talk with you, that we would spend time with you. And for those of us who don't know how to do that, that we would reach out to you and to others to learn how to pray. Lord, I pray for husbands and wives who haven't prayed together in quite some time, that you would help them lock hands and, and pray. And if they don't know where to start, Lord, help them pray for their kids like David prayed for his. Lord, I, I ask also for those in here who are, who are not married, that they would put themselves in the middle of a Christ-centered, Jesus-soaked community. Pray for those who are young in here, Lord, that they would see prayer not as a lever to get you to give them what they want, but a lever that changes their heart so that they can live for you. God, it's all for your glory, it's all for your praise, it's all for your name. In Jesus' name we ask all these things, amen.